Good morning. As was mentioned in the announcements, this morning's scripture reading will be coming from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive the meekness of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Well, good morning, and grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to begin this morning by reading to you a letter that Dr. James Dobson of A Focus on the Family once shared that a mother had given to him. And this letter was written to her fourth grade daughter from another fourth grade girl. It says, Awful Janet, you are the stinkiest girl in the world. I hope you die. But of course that's impossible. I've got some ideas. Play in the road. Drink poison. Get drunk. Knife yourself. Please do some of this, you big fat girl. We all hate you. I'm praying, oh please Lord, let Janet die. We're in need of fresh air. Did you hear me, Lord? Because if you didn't, we'll all die with her here. From Wanda. Do you think that those words had any impact on little Janet's life? Do you think that she will ever forget receiving that letter? Even at 80 years old, do you really think that she read it? crumpled it up, tossed it to the side, and thought, sticks and stones. One of the greatest deceptions that we continue to believe is that our words have no weight. That they have no real harm to them. They're only sticks and stones. They'll never hurt me. Only physical harm is genuine harm. In contrast to that, a 2018 journal of medical internet research, which did a broad study over cyberbullying, which was popular in today's younger crowds, showed that definitively that cyberbullying had an increased and significant risk for self-harm and suicidal thoughts for those who were the recipients of it. Interestingly enough, the study also showed that those who were doing the cyberbullying, and if those who maybe are an older crowd who aren't aware of that, that's bullying that's done by social media mainly. Those who, the, the interesting part was that those who actually participated, who were the aggressors in the cyberbullying, also were at a higher risk of suicidal thoughts and self-harm. Of course, we know from our experience that hostility and hateful words towards others 
not only harms the one receiving them, but the one that's giving them as well. But of course, that, that type of aggression, that type of hatred, those, that type of anger is not confined to children. We live presently in a world where if you say anything or do anything that is considered offensive, that is considered intolerant, or simply for making an honest mistake, we live in a world by doing those things, the mob of online trolls will commit digital assassination, an actual terminology in today's world, digital assassination, in which you are essentially expunged from society by the attacks of others. Of course, all of this is done with all of the righteous fury of the self-loving, self-worshipping, woke, politically correct crowd that they can muster, all that they can possibly muster. And as we realize now, such can and will have an effect on your job, have an effect on your influence, your relationships, and even possibly your future. That's where we presently are in our society. And so with all of that in mind, it really shouldn't surprise us that Jesus taught that if you react in unjustified anger, and if you slander and attack others with your words, that you are in danger of eternal damnation. Whenever we initially read the text of Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, which is where we're focusing this morning as we continue our study through Matthew, and we see Jesus talking about anger and, and words and the consequences of that anger and the consequences of that word, there might be an initial part of us that thinks, well, he's being a little bit severe here, that we would be in danger of eternal judgment, condemnation, simply because of our anger, or simply because of the words that we speak, until we are the recipients of that type of rage, until we hurt someone in that way, and we see the consequences of it. Jesus didn't like bullies. In fact, the reason he was crucified was because he stood up to the religious bullies of his day. It didn't mean that he didn't love him, but he wasn't going to endure them taking advantage of the weak. And part of being a disciple of Jesus is learning to not be a bully, is learning to restrain and control your anger and the words that are the inevitable end to that anger those words which are tied so intimately to our emotions. And this is, this is a deeply personal teaching of Christ. It's deeply difficult, and it's deeply personal, because it affects our marriages, it influences our work relationships, in fact, it engages with the very social fabric of our community. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, together. And we want to dive into some of the reasons behind our rage, if you will, and what the results of that can be. This is somewhat of a two-part sermon because this morning we're going to be talking about the anger itself and the resulting consequences. And next week we'll be talking about the reconciliation that is often needed after this type of anger is engaged with. 
So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And we've titled this sermon, Anger and Its Painful Companions. Anger and Its Painful Companions. Let's start in verse 21. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. So what is Jesus saying here are the reasons behind our rage? What are the reasons behind our rage? Did you know, and I, I find it very interesting, that road, road rage is the cause of 30 murders every year in the U.S. Over 12,000 injuries are attributed to road rage in a seven-year span. 12,000. Probably 10,000 of those happen in Austin. Eight out of ten Americans are involved in some form of road rage every year. Eight out of ten every year. And this, this rage that we're talking about, this road rage, is just this blind, all-consuming, unthinking, undiscerning anger at other drivers. For what you feel in the moment is justified. We've all been frustrated with other drivers at times, and if you haven't been angry, then you must be uh, an extra special, special measure of patience. But maybe some of us haven't. Maybe some of us haven't participated. Most of us hopefully haven't participated in the road rage that it's talking about here. But I imagine that many of us are probably guilty of word rage. That is, we're overcome suddenly with such frustration, with such anxiety, with such anger, with such disgust, that we break into a verbal assault on someone. Maybe we attack their character. Maybe we attack their intelligence. We cause them to doubt themselves. Maybe we even are frustrated at their very existence in that moment. And in that moment of anger, they are the focus of what we feel in that particular moment is divine wrath. Because we always feel justified in the moments of our anger. And for that single moment, if but for that single moment, we hate them. That is what it means to hate. They are an impediment to something that I want or I need. And their very essence is frustrating. This is what we might refer to as rage, what the Bible refers to as the wrath of man. And while, I, and while we might feel completely justified in that moment of our anger, many of us, if we have any good feeling, any, any good part about us, many of us afterwards feel guilty about how we acted. And that's what's the incredible thing about anger, is it makes you feel very justified in the moment. But almost immediately afterwards, you feel guilt for what you have done. And Jesus in this text is speaking about that specific type of anger. It is an unjustified, undiscerning outburst or a seething contempt which we continue to harbor and fan to flame. 
you ever have a campfire where it starts to die out and you have just a few embers and you think, oh, I've got to get this going again. So you, you maybe, maybe blow on it or you put some more twigs on it, whatever it is to get it going again. For some people, that's how their anger or their grudge is with other people. As soon as it starts to die down, they're worried that it might die out. So they have to fan those flames again. That's the type of anger that Jesus is talking about. Now, I, I think it's important for us to remember, anger in and of itself is not inherently sinful. In fact, there are times where it would be wrong for us not to be angry. Jesus was angry at times throughout his ministry. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, he's trying to heal a man who's crippled in his hand. And the Pharisees are watching him and waiting to pounce on him, waiting to judge him. It says there in the text that Jesus looked around at them with anger at the hardness of their hearts. He was angry that they, that they couldn't see how much this man needed him. He was angry that, that they were the leaders, and yet they weren't willing to help this man. They were just wanting to judge him. In Matthew 12, uh, 2, verses 12 through 13, Jesus is so frustrated, he's so angry with what's happening in the, temp, the temple at that time that he turns over the tables and drives out the money changers. And so Jesus at times was angered, and so we know that Jesus never sinned, and so anger in and of itself is not inherently sinful. And yet Jesus' anger was never due, and this is key here, Jesus' anger was never due to his pride, his personal indulgence, or his discomfort. It was never due to that. In fact, the moment where he was the most uncomfortable, when his pride, if you will, was wounded its most, and when his personal indulgence was most nullified at the cross, that's when he was not angry. That's when he's saying things like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so instead, what Jesus was often angered with was the stubborn rebellion of the hearts of men. He was angry at times with corrupt leaders who took advantage of the weak. He was angry whenever the glory of God was impugned in some way. And if those type of things don't anger us, then we should be concerned at our lack of moral clarity and conviction. If whenever we see someone in power taking advantage of someone who's weak, if that doesn't upset us, then we need to maybe do some introspection on ourselves. And surely this is what Paul meant when he said in Ephesians 4 and verse 26, be angry, but don't sin. But, if we are honest with ourselves, I think that we would realize that most of our anger doesn't fall under this justified anger heading. In fact, sometimes I'm afraid that we look to those passages about anger and we're so quick to jump on those to guard ourselves from the more deeper teaching, the more, the more convicting teaching about our anger. In fact, what we witness within the examples of Jesus' teaching here is that we find that behind most of our anger is our own pride or our own frustration with our fellow humans. But, but this, this frustration isn't a godly one. In fact, it often has to do with our own needs and our own arrogance. And, and what Jesus says is that we use weaponized words. We weaponize our words as a means of making them vehicles of our wrath. So to create the most possible pain that we can in that moment. 
That, that's what anger wants us to do. And that, it wants us to create as much pain as we possibly can in that moment. And so Jesus talks about two different sets of words. And when we look at those words, it helps us to see the reasons behind our rage. And the first reason is that we're, one of the main reasons that we get angry is because of the incompetence of others. The, what we view as the incompetence, the unintelligence of others. One of the words that Jesus condemns is the use of the word racha. It's an Aramaic word that really doesn't have an exact translation, but it essentially means empty. The modern equivalent would be empty-headed, stupid idiot. It speaks of an anger rising from when we feel that someone is ignorant, dumb, or weak. Are you really that stupid? That's how we would maybe say it today. And Jesus says that this type of anger in which we look at someone and we just completely disregard their humanity and all we see, we no longer see the image of God, all we see is someone deserving of saying, Raka, empty-headed fool, and completely disregarding them. And this da- the danger in this anger is that it's elevated when we feel that people should know better. They should know better. I mean, we know better, right? So why don't they know better? We're smarter. We're more competent. And really, at its heart, it's a contempt born out of a lack of compassion for the failings of others. We don't have time for stupid people. We don't have time for weak people. We don't have time for people who simply get in our way. They are dumb, and they need to get out of my way. That's what Jesus is talking about. The second reason, he says, behind our rage is not only because of incompetence, but what we view as immorality. The second word that Jesus uses is the word fool. And it's the word from where we get our modern word, moron. And now, interestingly enough, there are times when Jesus will use the word fool to describe someone who has stubbornly resisted the will of God. Luke 11 and verse 40, he talks about that. You fool. Scripture calls someone foolish whenever they have been given the word of God and they continue to live a certain way. And so he's not so much talking about the word, but the reason behind the word. Here, it's not used in someone who is grievous over someone's sin, who's in grief over the rebellion of another. But rather it's viewed in contempt. That is, we see the decisions that they're making... And instead of grieving over it, instead of having love for them and saying, why are you being so foolish? We dismiss them simply as a moron. Someone incapable of doing or being better. Again, they're no longer an image bearer. They're no longer someone with potential. They're they're no longer someone who God loves. They're simply a moron. A good example of this, I think, is how the Pharisees treated the tax collectors and sinners. Do you ever wonder why the, tax, the, the Pharisees are so surprised that Jesus is spending time with tax collectors and sinners? Why are they, why are they so surprised? Because the, ta- the Pharisees had already dehumanized the tax collectors and sinners. They were stupid. They were morons to them. They weren't worthy of their time. They, they weren't worthy of their investment. They weren't worthy of their love. They weren't worthy of their leading. They were never going to change. They were always going to be the same. And so why even deal with them? 
And this is what Jesus is talking about. And he says this type of anger in which we feel that we are just so completely justified is insidious. It's very dangerous. Because whenever we see someone making what we think are unwise decisions, we feel in just cutting them off, justified and just completely cutting them off. In fact, sometimes, many times, it's not even morally wrong. But simply not what we view as the best or wisest thing. And so we feel strongly about it. And instead of trying to have dialogue, instead of trying to lovingly talk to them, we simply dismiss them, dehumanize them, moron, they'll never change. And this is the reason, Jesus says, behind a lot of our rage. We view people as incompetent, as incapable of making good decisions. And so we dehumanize them. Instead of viewing them as image bearers, we, we give them a label and we toss them to the side. Because they'll never do any better. And they're not worthy of our respect. And Jesus says that this type of rage, this type of anger, is completely and absolutely unjustified. For two reasons. Number one, it's unjustified because it lacks humility. We don't know everything. Dehumanizing someone because of their incompetence assumes that we know everything, that we have no intellectual deficiencies. It easily dismisses someone because they believe something that we view is so unquestionably ignorant, therefore they can be dismissed, therefore they can be attacked. And so our verbal assaults in this way, when we attack someone in this way because of their incompetence, is really due a testament to our own arrogance. Because we refuse to show them mercy when we expect that mercy whenever we fail. Have you ever made a mistake of ignorance? And someone gets angry at you? What's the first thing that you say? I'm sorry. I didn't know. And we hope in that moment that people will give us that mercy. But often we refuse to give that same type of mercy to someone else. Is it possible that someone can be a decent person and yet make mistakes, honest mistakes, be caught up and deceived, and yet they simply are struggling to see it correctly? Is that possible? We better certainly hope so. Unless we're willing to say that we've never made a mistake. Humility seeks to understand, even on serious issues, it grants mercy without compromising truth. So Jesus says it's unjustified because it lacks humility, but it's also unjustified because it lacks clarity. Because we're often blind to our own faults. Now Jesus is going to talk about this later. He's going to talk about our tendency as humans to pass judgments on people, who you know, righteously zealous judgments on people, while we are not aware of our own faults, right? You've, you've got a, speck, a plank in your own eye, you're trying to correct a speck in somebody else's eye. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't make moral judgments. We have to make moral judgments and assessments as Christians. What it does mean is that we, if we are unaware, when we are unaware of our deficiencies, we are much more hateful towards others as they struggle with their failures. It doesn't mean that we excuse sin. But... It does mean that grace leads our temperance and how we engage with people who we view are making foolish decisions. 
because we've made foolish decisions before too. In fact, that's why we need Jesus. And so Jesus says, if you have this reason behind your rage, it's just because you think people are just dumb and not worthy of your time and making dumb decisions and therefore can be dehumanized. You can, a, a phrase that's common in our culture right now, you can unperson them, right, which means you don't view them as a person and you can just toss them to the side, not have anything to do with them. He said, you lack humility and you lack clarity and you're not recognizing your need for grace. But I want to talk real briefly here about how this has affected our culture. Because we presently live in a culture of rage. We live in a culture of rage. And, th and this teaching hits very close to home for our American experience right now. We live in a very polarized country. I appreciate the prayer that Gavin led earlier. Praying for that. We live in a very polarized culture. A culture that is set against itself. Where essentially half the country is opposed to another half of the country and its values, and its perspectives, and its views on life. And often, what we do in our present society, with people that we disagree with, is we dehumanize them. We unperson them. And what I mean by that is this. Because what they believe is so stupid, they are incompetent. And because they are so wicked and so wrong, they're immoral, that they are not worthy of engaging, of respecting, and of valuing. And because of that, we believe, they have foregone that right to be respected because of their belief. And when this happens... When you view someone, when you dehumanize someone, when you just they're not worthy of an image bearer title, they're not worthy of my respect, they're not really human. They're not really human because they're so dumb, they're so immoral, I'm not even going to deal with them. Whenever you do this, there is only one way to deal with that kind of person, and that is violence. Because you can't discuss it with them because they're too dumb and they're too evil. And yet, because it is your moral imperative, you believe it is your moral imperative to overcome this person, then you must do violence towards them. Thus, the culture of rage we are presently seeing in our society. And the increasing culture of violence. Wondering where it's coming from. dehumanization of both sides which leads to rage which leads to the only solution in their minds and in our minds at times to be violent and this is exactly what Jesus is talking about this is exactly what he is talking about when he talks about anger and murder being equal parts here. He's not saying that if you're angry with someone that you might as well have murdered them. 
What he is saying is that if you allow this type of rage to fester and grow, if you don't deal with it quickly, like we're going to talk about next week, if you don't deal with it and you dehumanize someone enough through their actions, then you are laying the foundation for justifying in your own heart and in the hearts of others their murder. Because when you are that angry with someone and when you dehumanize them in that way, it justifies your violence. Look at Germany. What happened in World War II? The dehumanization of the Jewish population. How could someone treat other humans in such a way? That wasn't by accident. That happened over time. Look at Rwanda. Look at every genocide that has ever happened on the face of this planet. And you look and you say, how could someone be so unfeeling? How could someone be so hateful? How could someone be so violent? How could one countryman turn against another countryman? How could that happen? It happened with a deep-seated, loathing, morally self-justifying rage. Jesus says, you have to stop that now. Otherwise, it's like a wildfire growing in your heart and in your relationships. Next week, we'll talk about what we can do personally to help guard ourselves against that rage. But I want to point this out as we close. There's an irony here as Jesus is talking about this lying and unfeeling and unthinking rage. And the irony is this. That it is this very rage that Jesus is talking about that will lead him to be crucified. This type of anger can be either individual or it can be communal. And when it seeps into a mob, it is blinding and it is dangerous. The leaders of some of the people during Jesus' day used the very tactics that he is talking about to incite those who were present at Jesus' trial to call for his execution. They claimed that Jesus was incompetent. He was claiming to be the Son of God. He said he could rebuild the temple in three days. How can he be the Messiah? This isn't how the Messiah talks. They claimed not only that he was incompetent, but he was immoral. He had a demon. He broke Sabbath laws. And by playing on the sentiments of the crowd, who had grown increasingly dissatisfied with the type of Messiah that Jesus was, they joined in. And so the leaders were able to dehumanize Jesus and crucify, lead the mob to crucify a man that they all knew was innocent. You don't think anger is powerful? You don't think rage can change the world? And the crucifixion should be a reminder to us as well as religious people that our religion, if we are not careful, can justify rather than mitigate a terrible rage that is based on something other than truth. Even religious people can be deceived in this way. And it's why James told religious people in James 1 and verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
here's the incredible twist to the normal narrative of this cycle of rage that happens. Here's the incredible twist for Jesus. Because the very one, the only one, who, if he wanted to, was justified in his right to view us as incompetent, to view us as making foolish decisions, the very one who had the right to be angry and dismissive of us because of our incompetence and because of our immoral decisions is the very one who refused to dehumanize us. He saw through the sin and saw the soul. And instead of saying, you fool, he said, you're free. And he allowed himself to be dehumanized for all of our foolish mistakes. To overcome the wrath of man and to satisfy the justice of God. And because of Jesus, we are guaranteed that same victory through his resurrection. That it doesn't matter what a culture of rage throws at his people. It doesn't matter the things that they falsely accuse us of, as he previously says. It doesn't matter if there is consequences for trying to live humbly and righteously before God, that God will overcome the rage and the wrath of man. And that he will justify us. For there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us pray together, and then we will be led to song. Father God, we come to you this morning with hearts that are trembling before your truth. Because as we read things about anger and rage and the reasons behind it, Father, we are convicted. Because we know that we fail in this way. We know that the natural man wants to act in this way, that we just so easily fall into these patterns of anger and hate and rage, especially in this present culture that seems to encourage this type of dehumanization. And we pray, Father, that you will give us the strength and the power to overcome, to respond as our Savior did with love and mercy, to stand for truth without compromise, and yet showing forth your light and your love to a world that is so confused right now and hurting. Lord, we know we don't always make the best decisions when it comes to our emotions and our anger. And we pray that in those moments that you will give us wisdom and discernment to know when it is justified and to know when it is unjustified. And even when it is justified, Father, to act in a Christ-like way, Father, to show forth your glory. Lord, be with us as a church that we would be patient and humble towards each other in moments when we disagree so that we don't fall into this dangerous cycle that we see here. Lord, grant us your grace. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you please withstand as we sing?